0: Welcome to AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association with Chief Operating Officer Kyle Longton. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy the episode.
1: Welcome to another episode of AFSPA Talks. I'm Kyle Longton and along with me as always is... Hannah Wolfhard. And today we're celebrating Pride Month. Um, it's June, which means it is Pride Month everywhere. Um, we may not see the usual Pride activities everywhere that we are used to seeing maybe back to 2019, but we're seeing some adaptations both here in D.C. and around the world. But, Hannah, when we, we talked about this episode, um, you offered to to talk a little bit, um, share some personal information. Would you like to, to start there?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm happy to share some of my own thoughts and experiences with our listeners before we jump on into this episode and talk to an expert.
1: I appreciate that. And thank thank you for, for trusting us, uh, myself and the listeners, to to share that and to share your experiences. So, um, Hannah, you know, we're talking about LGBTQ youth in today's episode and some of the, the challenges they might face or some of the the ways that they, uh, some of the things they might experience as they go through an, I, the process of identifying. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe at what age you you started identifying as part of this community?
0: Yeah, definitely. When I was a young teenager, I started to identify in this community, Um, not to my family, but to a few friends at first. Um, And it was a slow process for me, but it was a difficult one because I didn't feel completely comfortable coming out because of just the stigma surrounding it in society Um, and even some sort of biases in my own family um, that I was nervous to approach and have to deal with. And so I was grateful that the friends that I did come out to accepted me and created a welcoming environment for me. I'm very grateful to have had that experience. Um, but it wasn't the same experience when I came out to my family, Kyle, it was harder than that. Um, more difficult, There was not acceptance right away. And so I wish that I had had resources to go to for help, um, just on how to navigate that and the challenges that come with that.
1: How did you, you deal with that? Did you, um, seek, you know, behavioral health, mental health, um, treatment counseling, um, from a professional, did your family perhaps do the same, um, to figure out how to, to support you?
0: So my family did not do that, but I definitely did. And I was able to find somebody, a therapist to talk to who was, um, you know, comfortable discussing LGBTQ plus topics. And I'm still with that therapist today. And so she kind of guided me through my high school experience, if you will. And then my college experience as well, um, because it was a whole new set of people to come out to and kind of start the process all over again.
1: It, and I've heard others say before that, you know, in some ways you're coming out every day to, as you, you meet new people. Um, yes, it, definitely. Ha, has that become easier over time?
0: Yes. Um, 100%. I think in the beginning, like when I was in high school, I was very hesitant to come out to people. I wouldn't have just told anybody if I was in this position, I wouldn't have said, you know, to you, oh, by the way, I'm in this community and I'm comfortable speaking about it. Um, It was kind of a sign to me when we brought up the idea of this podcast topic that I had, you know, grown a lot in that sense, Um, because I was, you know, very willing to just say, hey, Kyle, by the way, I do, I am a part of this community and I'd love to speak on it.
1: And I think my reaction was very, very, We'll talk about this if you want to, we can talk about this in whatever way you want to. And and so I think that I just, there are still some biases out there. There are, I just want to make sure that you are in a comfortable place and I'm glad that you are. Um, And it sounds like it is easier. And I, I, again, appreciate that trust. And, and I'm glad that we're exploring this topic because I think there are probably people, I know there are people out there um, you know, younger than you in the same, same situation that it sounds like you were in your early teens who are not sure what to do or whose parents aren't sure how to react. And I'm, I'm hoping that our discussion today and, and you're sharing your own experience, um, can, can help them.
0: Definitely. And thank you for creating a safe space for me to share my experience and for others listening to, you know, feel comfortable with their experiences as well from this.
1: We're all part of the same community. We've got subcommunities within that, but we're all part of a, an AFSA family here. And so I uh, appreciate you um, you know, helping helping take the lead on, on crafting this episode as well. I also want to say thank you to GLIFA, the LGBTQ plus group at the State Department and other foreign affairs agencies and their president, Jeffrey Anderson, who first suggested this topic um, and for their partnership and their advocacy on behalf of their members. Um, so- Hannah, thank you very much. I think we've got a great guest um, who who works a lot with um, LGBTQ youth um, and also with their families in some ways. And um, I hope to I hope that I learn a lot in this episode. I hope that that you hear some things that are helpful now, and that our listeners hear some things that are helpful, or or um, that you may have learned already, and and would have been helpful to to have that experience previously. Um, so I'll take a moment if I may just, and I'll introduce Alyssa Clayton. She's a licensed independent social worker who's provided international mental health services for more than two decades in a wide variety of settings. She's lived, worked, and raised a family across five continents, and she's passionate about providing high quality, individualized mental health services to expats. She believes that every person brings experts expertise, strength, and skills to their lives and relationships, and she views collaboration and space for humor as key components of any successful mental health work. Currently, Alyssa is researching transcultural elements that impact mental health factors, such as intergenerational, personal, and collective traumas and events in pursuit of her PhD. We connected with Alyssa through our long-standing relationship with the Truman Group, and she's one of their providers. Uh, when we spoke prior to this episode, she shared with me Um, that around half of her clients are young people who identify as LGBTQIA or somewhere else on the sexual attraction spectrum or gender identity spectrum. So welcome, Alyssa Clayton. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of AFSPA Talks. And today we're talking about issues facing LGBTQ plus youth.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're glad glad to have you. And and of course, we're doing this in conjunction with Pride Month, but this is an issue that is an everyday issue. Um, And so as a starting place, I want to make sure that our listeners understand the terms that we may be using our discussion, how we're talking about um, the community that that um you serve in in a big way so can you walk us through what we mean when we say lgbtqia if there are other terms we should be using that that might be more inclusive
2: yeah so i'm actually going to start with the word queer um because that's the language that you'll hear me use the most often today okay. um and just um to kind of address the trajectory that queer has been on so you know historically the the word queer has been used very much as an epithet to demean folks that are, you know, existing across the sexual attraction and gender spectrums. And so um at at some point within those communities, many people made the decision to actually reclaim that language. Um, And so for me, um, when the language of queer was really becoming very common um, when I was in my teens, it also was very directly connected to like advocacy and activism and focusing on equity. And so um, depending on kind of when you were um, coming of age into the community and when you, um, and how you identify now, um, mm-hmm. queer can be something that feels very empowering and very connecting and also very inclusive, right? As, as, as a word, it often is used to be more broadly inclusive as a community than something like lgbtqia plus um because it just allows for all of the difference that might exist but there are absolutely i want to make sure and emphasize there are absolutely people who don't like the language of clear and they Mm -hmm. choose not to use it and that's absolutely okay Um, so within within that language lgbtqia so The letters themselves stand for different communities, right? So L is lesbian, G is gay, B is bisexual, T is transgender, um, and using that definition of transgender as a person who's assigned sex um, and their gender don't match. Um, Q usually means queer, but it can also mean questioning, so it depends on kind of who you ask. I is intersex. Um, and A is asexual, um, which is someone who experiences little to no sexual attraction or has sexual attraction under very limited circumstances.
1: Okay. And, and you you mentioned before, and, and you used this in a conversation we had recently, um, the sexual attraction spectrum and the gender identity stri- spectrum. And those, along with your your explanation now of the, the term queer, stri- strike me as very inclusive terms, or at least um, more inclusive than than a specific letter um, uh, LGBTQIA that, uh, as you mentioned before. So, um, and it's allowing some nuance to exist for so many. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to ask for numbers because I don't think that there are, I I, I don't think the numbers are, are, are out there. And I think that there are more people in particular youth based on your experience and practice who identify on these, on these spectrums. Is that right? Are you finding yeah. that it's, it's more common than than people might think?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you know, one of the things that's been really incredible about the changes with young people um, being really open and really um, discussing these ideas is that I'm seeing actually in older populations as well, then they're starting to say, oh, some of this makes sense to me. Like, I do have this kind of attraction, but I never thought of myself as anything other than straight or, you know, those kinds of things. So it's really been an interesting shift that I think is actually opening, um, all individuals up to this idea that that humans don't simply exist as this or that, right? That there that there can be kind of these layers and nuances.
1: Yeah. That's that that is very interesting that sort of as as younger generations have gotten more comfortable with it, older generations and and just society perhaps more generally talking about these issues, being more open about it, have identified um, themselves as as fitting somewhere on that spectrum other than at one complete opposite end. Yes, absolutely. Extreme end, I should say. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you see in your practice, particularly when you're working with youth. Um, clinically speaking, what are the diagnoses that you encounter?
2: So for young people who are who are identifying or think that they may be identifying within the queer community, um, we really often kind of right at the beginning when I'm talking to folks, we often are looking at something like an adjustment disorder as They're trying to kind of manage what it is that they're experiencing, but it can, it can, it can impact them in ways like depression, um, is often a really common, um, diagnosis. Anxiety is a huge diagnosis across, um, both attraction spectrum and, and gender identity spectrums. Um, and then we, we see some trauma. So sometimes for folks who are living within uh, the queer community, whether it's their own, um, sometimes their access to representation and ideas that fit with what they're experiencing internally is very, very minimal, right? So even today, you know, I, I would argue representation is much better than it was even 10, 20 years ago. But um, for a lot of young people, if they aren't able to get access to to that representation, if they don't know that's there, they sometimes have some trauma that's that's related to that. And so we do sometimes have some PTSD diagnoses um, that are also connected. Um, the most common for those on the gender um, spectrum is, a, is a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. Um, and I, I feel like people kind of toss this around, but I'm not sure if people know what it is. So just to kind of define it, um, the idea of gender dysphoria is that a person's body and their gender don't match. Um, and what that does is that creates some really intense and exhausting um mental distress. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we, when I think about dysphoria, it's really all of the uncomfortable or difficult emotions that folks can feel that are connected to their appearance, um, sometimes very specifically to their body, um, or to how people experience them externally. So they might feel okay with their body. Um, but when they're out, maybe they're being misgendered by other people or they're being, um, criticized or aren't able to dress in a way that fits with how they they want to be seen. Um, So there are kind of these different planes in which dysphoria can impact them. Um, And there's there's actually an additional component that's just really recently been being researched called uh, non-binary dysphoria. So you have folks who um, identify as non-binary, not male, not female. They're um, outside of that very specific binary. And so what that means is that for folks with non-binary dysphoria, often there's a sense that they're supposed to be like choosing a side or they're supposed to be figuring out something that fits um, those established binary genders. And so sometimes they really struggle with this idea of, am I even real? Or um, some people might even identify with like non-human characters or bodies because that feels more like how they feel internally. Um, So there are all these different ways that they kind of experience the body and the way that the outside world interprets their body.
1: Interesting. And, and you mentioned a little bit, um, you referred to it before in terms of, of representation, that there's more representation that we're seeing maybe in the culture. And, um, but, and, and sometimes that is maybe representation of, uh, in a previous conversation, we talked about a representation of a gay character, or a lesbian character, but we don't necessarily see as many transgender characters or asexual characters and so forth. And, and it can be challenging for youth to find those, um, representations to to identify. Um, is that something that, that you have found, um, ongoing in your, your, your clinical practice and, and how do you approach that?
2: Yes. So, something that's been really incredible to watch over the years is as gay and lesbian characters have become more consistent in, um, broader cultural media um, and in just like standard discourse in terms of what families look like. um, Some of the folks in those communities have actually found a little bit stronger footing, um, which has been really great to see. Um, And it's opened the opportunity then for some of these other communities to have a little bit of a spotlight and to ask for their own representation, which is great. I do. What I have found is that um, when when young people that I work with identify with a community such as something like asexual or, um, aromantic and, and they try to describe that to others, the lack of knowledge and understanding, um, that others have, even if they're accepting of it, um, is really distressing for them. And it's very hard for them to find a way to engage with their own identity because they don't have anything to kind of compare it to or connect it to. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's often a lot of, um, self-doubt and a lot of um, heavy concern that that they're never going to find who they are right that they they know that this word is there they know that this definition is there but they just can't find um, others that they can relate to they feel like there's no community mm-hmm. um, and like I mentioned at the beginning, you know within the queer community, a lot of this language is specifically about building community like finding folks who have those similar experiences or needs or um, processes, right and so, What I have found is that using um, contemporary literature, using online forums, there are things that exist. There are some incredible um, authors out there that are putting out really great, really well-written, very representative and normalizing um, sexual attraction and gender identity spectrum uh, literature. and so those are kind of the things that when I work with young people, I try to connect them to those pieces. I try to help them um, identify mm-hmm. where some of that representation might be. So the, even if it's limited, yeah. it it helps them feel a little bit less isolated.
1: Right. That that it does exist. That they yes. they have they, a community. Yes, yeah. they exist. Right. They they have a community. Um. That that what they're feeling is what they're feeling, and there's nothing wrong with it. Yes. Um, absolutely. To feel comfortable. That that is excellent. Well on on that subject then uh, you know as youth um are going through this process of self discovery and self identification well, what emotions might they be feeling and and how in your practice have you seen those those feelings those emotions manifest themselves so you know if we have parents listening what might they observe.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um so I think one of the things that's really complicated about this is that a lot of times, you know, it's it's preteens and teens, and they can be a little, at least in terms of our like social mythology, you know, they can be a little volatile, they can be a little confusing. Um, and so a lot of times parents, I think, assume that if their child is having strong emotions in one direction or another, or is... Um, you know, being angry or combative that it's just like, oh, they're just being a teenager, right? That's, I hear that a lot. Um, I need them to just, you know, not be such a teenager. But what I know is that when young people are exhibiting any kind of emotion, they're trying to communicate something, right? And so there's a, we often see um, for young people within that queer community space, you know, sadness and social anxiety tend to be really strong. There tends to be um, a lot of low self-confidence or a sense of like, um, I'm not good enough. And it's, and it, and it does, it often manifests in all kinds of ways. Like it's, it tends to be very visible. Um, and so something that I find is that parents will actually see that in their young people and they'll refer them often, often without the young person having disclosed their own identity needs. Um, parents will refer them and say, you know, they're really focused on how, Um, they aren't getting high enough grades or they aren't um, good enough to continue this sport or to go out for the play or to, you know, be engaged in things that they used to really enjoy. And so that for me is often a really key um, factor to kind of, have a conversation about what is it that's having you sit in this space where like you are not enough, where you can't do these things. Um, and that can certainly impact uh, non-queer teens. But I think that that's a space where parents could maybe start to have some of that conversation. Um, there also can really be... Um, Some of the ones that frighten parents are things like really drastic changes in appearance or a really varied self-expression. So um, some of the young people I work with, like one day they might come out and they're dressed in what would be considered, you know, a very feminine um, type of an outfit. And then the next day they're, um, you know, they've maybe cut their hair and they're dressed in a very um, more masculine type of an outfit, or maybe they're mixing and matching, right? And parents sometimes feel a little concerned um, often they're worried about what what their child's peers will say. So parents often bring that, will present with that, right? We
1: mm-hmm. we think
2: they're being bullied. We think that, or they, we think they will be. We're not. This sure
1: could be, yeah,
2: right. Um, so those are kind of the things you're looking for. It's I wish that it were more concrete, and I could be like, okay, here's what's happening. Um, but I think anytime if you notice that your young person. Is, is having some trouble moving back and forth in terms of how they present themselves. If they get you to watch a show with them that has a character that you've never heard of, right? Like a, a non-binary character or um, the this has been so interesting with streaming services. I feel like this has really increased yeah. where parents will say, you know, like, oh, we've been watching this show and she got really mad at me when I made this comment about... Such and such, like, you know, and and so kind of help helping parents to recognize, like, if your young person is really enjoying the show and it has a lot of queer representation, maybe they're just trying to gauge where you are and if they're able to be able to have a conversation with you about that. Um, just kind of some of those, I think those are the pieces that for parents are helpful to notice mm-hmm. and to maybe even bring it in yourself, um, you know, just noting um, if you're wondering, if you're thinking as possible that they're in that space or they've disclosed something, even if they've disclosed it like an anger, um, bringing some of those shows in yourself or finding some of those books and kind of talking about it,
1: right? Seeing where, where your team falls. just being open to that conversation and, or, or starting that conversation as a parent sounds like a a great, great place to be. It's a great place to be if you can. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so, uh, you know, as we're talking about parents in your, your experience, what emotions might the parents themselves be experiencing that maybe they're manifesting to their kids or, or trying to, to work through themselves in this situation?
2: Yeah. So you know, it's so interesting because we do often think about the young person, right? So young, young people can be confused. They can feel alone. They can feel afraid. Um, you know, and we think about those diagnoses, right? Like dysphoria or depression or anxiety, but we often actually forget about what the parents are going through. Um, and, and I think it's really easy to kind of fall on one side, you know, speaking of binaries, like deciding that parents are either right or wrong in the way they're handling it. Right. Right.
1: They, um, they just need to deal with it. Um, and, that's right. And adjust. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Either figure it out or, you know, refuse, but just pick a side. Right. And so I think, I think one of the m- most important things for parents and for, for young people, if they can, I, it's, they're in a hard spot to, to kind of be asked to do this, but to try and recognize that, for parents, many parents have so many um, hopes and dreams and assumptions about what it will be like to be a parent and what their children will be like. And until their kids really get older, they don't actually face a lot of that. A lot of parents don't actually um, think about the fact that they can't control a lot of those pieces of who their kid is. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to, um, as parents, recognize that you know it's okay if you feel a sense of loss or grief because your child didn't fit into you know a, a more narrow definition maybe or some or a definition just that you recognize right or that you can relate to um, a lot of times losing that that relatable experience um, like of what it is to grow up as a teen girl or a teen boy uh, who's cisgendered um that can feel like a big loss like I was supposed to go through this with you and now I'm you know, completely out of my depth. I don't know what to do as a parent. Um, or there can also be this sense that parents, um, like that they're, they're not allowed to be um, angry about it right that um and i mean if you're talking about grief you know one of the stages of grief is anger right that it's okay yeah. to kind of have that space i would argue if possible you know if you're angry you know, not, not directing that toward your young person, right. But finding a space where you can actually allow yourself to feel that and recognize that there is a loss there. And that doesn't demean or diminish who your child is. Um, And it doesn't mean you can't be a fantastic support for them. It just means you've got to work through that on your own. Um, And that's absolutely fine.
1: And I think that's an important point. I mentioned to you that, that we have seen examples of whole families, uh, uh, youth who identifies on the gender identity or on the sexual attraction spectrum maybe both parents and even siblings who have sought counseling when a, a young family member is learning about themselves um, have you seen examples of like this in your own practice uh, of family reactions and and have those changed over the years
2: Yes, absolutely. So I love, I love the idea and I would encourage any family, um, with a young person identifying in the queer community to have everybody, um, at least do self-education, but I love the idea of family therapy or individual therapies where you can kind of work through your own ideas and assumptions and kind of move into a, a space that feels better for everybody. So that's wonderful. And, and that's very different from when I very first started doing this work. Um, initially young people would be referred and it would be like, this is their issue. This is on them. Like, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> we're not going to do family. Um, even in families that were really um, supportive, a lot of yeah. times it was like, Oh, but it's them. Right. It, it's not, it's not us. And, and in recent years, just the last, um, I'd say maybe, three or four, not very many, it's been much more consistent that parents, that siblings will be saying, I want to better understand this. I want our family to uh, incorporate this into who we are as a family. Um, I, I do think there's also some anxiety and maybe fear even on the part of parents in terms of what does this look like, right? Like how do I keep my child safe? How do I, um, How do I not end up misgendering or um, causing them more distress or more trauma? So I think also parents are more interested in how do my actions actually impact um, my child and how do I kind of move past some of that terror that sometimes, you know, makes me think, oh, I don't want to talk about it or I'll just nod, but I'm not sure what we're doing um, in this moment. Um, So I do think there's that too. I think there's a, there's a willingness to address that fear now um, rather than kind of Sit behind it and and just hope everything turns out okay.
1: That that is great and sort of facing it head on and then seeking not only self education at the very least but perhaps their own counseling support system to to have that place to express their own emotions so it's not Absolutely. being directed at at a family member. Um, it's there's a healthy place to work through it. I, yes. That's that's yes. excellent. And you have worked specifically um, with our membership a lot, um, with with youth in, in the Foreign Service uh, Benefit Plan, and you are familiar with some of the unique challenges our members face from your own experience living and working overseas, but also through your clinical work. Um, we have members who who move every few years. We have members who may be living overseas for for decades. Um, their whole their whole childhood and and um, youth is overseas. But do you have any special advice for our members? particularly those who may be going overseas or, or spending the majority of their time overseas.
2: Yes. So it's, you know, it's such a unique population, right? Um, for a lot of young folks, they have the opportunity to build community where they are, where they're established. And and when you're, when young folks are moving consistently, that can be really difficult. Um, one of the things that comes up a lot is parents will often ask me if you um, it's safe for their queer child to be on the internet as much as they are or to be, um, or we'll even ask directly, like, do you think my child, for example, identifies as trans or identifies as non-binary or as pansexual because they're on the internet, right? Do you think that this is coming from internet influence and should we limit that? Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things that I often recommend for parents is to actually allow that online connection, um, because of that consistent movement um, for young folks and families in the foreign service, the it's really difficult for young folks to build community when they aren't staying in the same places. And so I know that parents have a lot of anxiety about that and kind of what what is the internet offering. And there certainly can be concerns with it. There certainly can be forums that are you know validating unsafe behaviors and things like yes. that. But I, I do think it's important that young people, they can get access to so much information and groups. Um, I often will refer um, my um, queer clients to um, like online group therapy forums or places where they can have that connection through um, you know, through agencies that I trust or, or that I, I feel like are, are making good choices <laughs> in yeah. terms of safety, right? But you know, I think that that's a really positive peer support that they can access, that they simply cannot access if they're moving every couple of years to a new school. Um, yeah. Some kids get really lucky and they have friends who are within the queer community in the spaces where they land, um, but that can then often make the next move really difficult um, because they don't know what's coming next and they don't know if they'll have that support.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, the other thing,
1: oh. No, I would just say once again I'm hearing you talk about the importance of, of- youth in particular in the queer community being able to see that that the community exists that they are real that there are others like them that they are not alone um and and allowing for that in a safe way and that there are safe safe forums for that out there and and parental as with any internet activity yes parental monitoring is is good but giving giving kids and youth space to explore that and to connect with others is is very healthy absolutely
2: yeah it's so important um The other thing that I know comes up specifically for um, foreign service folks is this is depending on where you are living, this can be a really messy, um, complicated uh, way of living, right? So so there are there are countries where um, any form of the queer community is not only not recognized, but their existence is actually, you know, against the law or any behaviors related to that are against the law. There are places, you know, I work with young folks in some countries who are afraid to be outside, who are afraid to correct someone if they're misgendered um, because they know that violence against them will not be sanctioned in any way. Right. They, they are not safe in those ways. And so I think something else to consider as a parent of a, of a queer youth is, You know, if you have ways to help them be safer in those spaces, to help them understand, you know, from country to country, kind of what that looks like. Um, Even, you know, sometimes uh, young people that I've worked with, they might be out in a place where they're living, and the next place they go to, they make the decision to not be. And that's, and the whole family um, often gets in on that decision. And we have a conversation about, you know, how do we make sure that as a family, you're remembering that this is who your child is presenting as on arrival. And that's who you maintain, you know, that they are, you know, walk, helping parents with things like um, dead naming, accidental dead naming or misgendering or things like that. Um, so those are, those are important pieces that I think sometimes parents don't think as much about if they themselves are not part of the queer community, because the level of anxiety and the possibility of danger in some places is just so incredibly high. Um, But if if, if you don't, if you aren't worried about that, right, it's really hard to actually notice um, how intensive a feeling that can be and how hard it can be to just step outside of your house.
1: Um, Yeah. And, and I just want to add here that for any foreign service families who are listening and who might have concerns about the adequacy of medical treatment or access to um, treatment options overseas, particularly for treatment of gender dysphoria, I would encourage you to contact the Bureau of Medical Services to have that conversation. They're they are plugged into this. Um, they, they've gone through it with other families. So make sure you, you go to the right source for that conversation, any concerns you might have. So, um, Alyssa, this has been a fantastic conversation, enlightening in so many ways, but also just reaffirming um, of uh, the, the support and the communities that exist out there for, for youth and providing youth and, and children space to be who they are and to find out who they are. Um, and, and I just want to, is there anything else you'd like to add anything that you feel like we've missed in our discussion, um, for our our listeners?
2: I think maybe one of the things that That might be useful just to name is that for parents in particular, you know, there isn't like a right or a wrong way to do this. And I think a lot of times parents feel like either they know what to do or they don't. Um, But there are so many ways to walk through this with your child. I think the biggest pieces are allowing your youth to to tell you what that self-identification is and to have them help you with the language that they're using um, and to just be okay with that, right? That it doesn't have to be a term that you recognize or that you're comfortable with um, and you don't need to worry about um, if it's going to change. Um, I do know something that comes up because language is so fluid within the queer community and because young people are in that process, right? So. It, they tend to go kind of back and forth or am I this, am I that, does this make sense? Um, and we want them to do that, right? We want them to find the identities that fit best. Um, and I think sometimes parents think that means that either it's not real or it's not going to stick around just or a phase. yeah, just a phase, right? So I think just allowing parents, allowing yourselves to just kind of take a breath, recognize it's a process and that it's a really fantastic um, opportunity for your kid to know themselves really well and for you to get to know them really well on their terms.
1: And and I think just on that, because I've heard people say before, you know, oh, they're too young to know that. Um, you know, and, and I think that goes along with the, what you're saying here, I'm just curious, where are you seeing, seeing in your practice, children and youth, um, you know, starting to explore their identity, whether it's, it's gender or sexual attraction, where are you, what, at what age are you starting to see that? And, and, um, those questions starting to come up.
2: Yeah. So I have worked with young folks, um, at ages, you know, as low as maybe seven or eight kind of talking about, I know that this is different. It doesn't, it doesn't, fit with what everyone else is saying or with what other people are doing. Um, And you're absolutely right, you know, often parents will say, well, you know, they don't know or it's too soon or, and and I absolutely understand that instinct to sort of default to that. What I know is that when I sit with a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old and they talk to me about these pieces, they know. They know what does and doesn't fit. They know what it feels like internally to not understand why other people aren't the same. Um, they are trying to figure out what that language is. And, and that's a really actually been a really great positive in the last few years as well. Some of this language in terms of um, the gender identity spectrum and the attraction spectrums some of that language is filtering in, right? It is getting into schools, it is getting into conversations, it's in media. And so, an incredible change that I've seen is that young people, you know, as young as seven, eight, nine, ten, can say, I heard about this term, um, you know, pansexual, or I heard about this term transgender. And I think maybe it makes sense to me. And here's why I think maybe it makes sense to me. And can you help me understand if I'm understanding that term correctly? Um, And so they have that language, I think, which, you know, easily a decade ago, young people did not have that language. And so they were instead presenting with, I don't seem to make sense the way other people make sense and I don't know why, right? And so it was a a more laborious process in some ways. Um, So, But I do, I absolutely think that kids at that age when they're expressing doubt and uncertainty, they know what they're talking about. What that looks like at the far end of finding their identity, we don't know. But we know that they are asking those questions and that it's important to them to ask those questions, which then I, I would argue makes it important to us to listen to those questions and help them try to move through to find answers.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for the the work you do with our membership and the one-on-one and family basis, but, but also thank you for joining us today and, and sharing your experience and your expertise.
2: Absolutely. It's so great to be here. I'm so pleased that, uh, that you are prioritizing uh, queer youth.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. There, there are members too. And, and a big, uh, important part. So thanks again, Alyssa. Absolutely. Take care. You too. Thanks again to Alyssa Clayton for joining us today. For more information on coverage of mental and behavioral health services, as well as gender affirming treatment available under the foreign service benefit plan, please refer to the 2021 brochure or to our website at aspa.org slash FSBP, or give us a call at 202-833-4910. Thanks for joining us for this episode of ASPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show and tell your friends about it. We welcome your feedback on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Look for at Aspa Cares. All information offered in this podcast is meant to be educational. Comments offered by the hosts or guests are not intended as medical advice. Please direct questions about your personal health needs to a provider. Should there be any discrepancy between information offered in this podcast and official plan documents for the Foreign Service Benefit Plan or other products offered by ASPA, the policy provisions will prevail. Special thanks as always to Hannah Wolfhart for producing, editing, and mixing this episode. We'll see you next time.